Romans chapter 8. And let's consider a few more landmarks that our fathers have set. And we primarily refer to our fathers in the faith, especially the apostles. This first point or landmark that I want to give you this afternoon is that we are predestinarian Baptists. On our sign at the road, it says that we are predestinarian. Remember, we once had a couple that visited us and thought we were Presbyterian Baptists. They had gone by a little too fast. And this man had thought about it for a couple of weeks, and the Lord struck him several miles from here to think, that wasn't the word Presbyterian. I need to drive back over and check that sign out again. And yes, we're predestinarian Baptists. We're not Presbyterian Baptists. We're predestinarian Baptists, meaning that we believe in the doctrine of predestination because it's taught so plainly in the Bible. We're not predestinarian for any other reason. I turn you to Romans chapter 8 because I just want to read a few verses to you and see if you don't agree that we ought to be predestinarian just by reading a few chapters of Scripture. We believe that election, God's choice of whom He will save, and predestination, God sovereignly determining the destiny beforehand of those people is taught in the Bible. God made choice among the angelic host. The devil and his angels would be reserved in flaming fire and chains under the judgment of the great day. He chose not to save a single one of them. He chose to preserve the rest of the angelic host in their original holiness, and thus they are called the holy angels, and they are called the elect angels, because God elected to preserve them from falling and following the highest of their particular order of being, and that's the devil himself. And among the human race, God gave us all a chance in the Garden of Eden. He gave us a chance in the most perfect man that was ever created. Let no man say that God is not fair. He gave one little commandment to a perfect man with a perfect wife in a perfect world. Adam was allowed to eat freely of all the trees of the garden except one. And Adam chose with us in him to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and condemned us all. And that is why death reigned in the world from Adam to Moses, even before there was a law of the old covenant that condemned men to death. Because we were all dead in Adam, our father. We had our chance. I get so irritated when someone says that election isn't fair. God's more than fair. If God were fair, we'd all be in hell right now. God's merciful and gracious. He isn't fair He's righteous and merciful. And He raised up the Lord Jesus Christ to stand in our place as the second Adam. And everyone chosen in Christ in the second Adam shall have everlasting life. Romans chapter 8. Verse 28 is quoted by so many, but they only know the first half because they think little about the second half. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Well, who loves God? To them who are the called according to His purpose. 
God has a purpose in the lives of some men, and that is that they'll be called out of this world, and they will love their Father in heaven. But He hasn't applied that purpose toward all men, because He leaves a whole other category of men as vessels of wrath fitted to destruction in order to reveal His power and wrath upon them. We'll see it in just a moment. Those who are the called according to His purpose... Let's find out a little bit more about that sovereign purpose of God. Verse 29. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. The God of heaven wanted a family and His Son, Jesus Christ, to be the preeminent firstborn of that family. And He's conforming us to that image by His grace. Verse 30, moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. And we could go on and read further that it is impossible to be separated from the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, and it's impossible to be separated from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus for us. Now it said, for whom he did foreknow. God has known his elect from before the world began. He wrote their names in the book of life. The Bible tells us the names were written in the book of life in Revelation 13.8 and 17.8 before the world began. But he's going to say to the wicked, I never knew you. What a contrast. I have foreknown you. I have always known you. I have never known you. And it's God's choice to know or not to know. And that word knowledge there is not referring to his omniscience of all things, because in that respect, he knows all men. But it's his affectionate and personal relationship with them as his children. And so we're predestinarians because we find the word predestination in verses 29 and 30 that God has predestinated a people to be conformed to the image of his son that there will be a family of God in heaven. The spirits of just men made perfect. Those whose names are written in heaven. For those of you that know Hebrews 12. Turn to the next chapter. Romans chapter 9. And we could read the whole chapter, but I'll just read a part of it. A landmark of our faith is that we believe in election and predestination. Romans chapter 9, verse 15. Look at this about the God that we worship, the God the Bible presents, the God that has been lost in most churches today. Romans 9, 15. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. There's only one will and there's only one I in that verse. And God is the I and it is His will. And it's by His will that He chooses to have mercy and compassion on some. His is not the love of a whore toward all. His is the sovereign, particular, peculiar, special personal love of God toward His elect. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. 
there's a conclusion that results from that fact. So then, this is logical. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. There is no act of the human will, and there is no effort of the human legs or any other part of their anatomy or mind that brings about the mercy of God. It is by the choice of God that we read about in verse 15. It's God that chooses to show mercy. And listen, this God is worthy of all our praise and adoration forever and ever, that He would ever set His love upon us. We must humble ourselves before Him. It's verses like this that can give you that poor and contrite spirit described in Isaiah 66 in which we would tremble before His Word. There's nothing preached in the average pulpit today to cause anyone to tremble. They're dealing with a sugar daddy in the sky. The entire difference between those in hell and those in heaven is 100% upon them. There's no cause for trembling when that kind of a salvation and that kind of a God is presented. No trembling at all. But listen, I present to you the God of the Bible who will have mercy and compassion on whom He chooses to have mercy and compassion. And our willing and our running doesn't have a thing to do with it. He then immediately takes up a man whom He chose to have no mercy and no compassion upon. And that's Pharaoh. Verse 17, For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up. Now this is not a man who's called according to God's purpose to be a child of God. This is a man who's called according to God's purpose to be the object of his wrath and his power. Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. In one verse, the Apostle Paul draws a conclusion from the story of Pharaoh. You can go back and read in Exodus, and you can read over and over that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God did not have to infuse evil into Pharaoh. Pharaoh sinned of his own free will, if you want to call it free will. He freely sinned. God left him in that sin and gave him no help, no grace to change his heart and mind like he did everyone else that's ever believed and followed him in worship, that's ever walked with God. Whether it's Noah or Abraham or others, it was God's choice to show them mercy. It was God's choice to arrest Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. But he did not do that to Pharaoh. You say, well, he's not fair to Pharaoh. He gave him ten warnings in the land of Egypt. How many of those plagues would you have needed to learn the lesson? Why didn't he humble himself? Because his heart was hard and full of rebellion, just like yours is and just like mine is, without the grace of God. Because it says, therefore, verse 18 is a logical conclusion of 15, 16, and 17 together. Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. And Pharaoh was one he hardened. Hardened him for one purpose, that I can magnify my name on that man. I will take the strongest, most intelligent, educated, powerful man on earth, and I will use him for my own honor and glory. And he did. He destroyed the land of Egypt, took their wealth and gave it to his people, and then let that man think about dying in the midst of the Red Sea when he took the wheels off his chariot before he dropped that water all over him. 
I'll tell you, the king of Egypt, the ruling monarch of the earth, stained his royal tunic before he got to die. And I love the God of heaven who, who taught me these little stories through my parents when I was a little child to look into that Red Sea and wonder why in the world did that man take his chariot down into the Red Sea after ten pretty significant object lessons in the land of Egypt. Because whom the Lord will, he hardeneth. Verse 19. Here comes someone who doesn't believe in election or predestination. Thou wilt say then unto me, Paul heads the argument off by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? If God is overruling the use of our will in all these circumstances to get himself glory and honor upon men, how can we be held accountable while God's getting honor and glory by overruling us? You know what the apostle He doesn't say, let's sit down and talk about it. Let's sit down and reason through this. No, you misunderstood me. I wasn't really presenting a God as hard as you're making it out to be. He didn't say any of that. Here is what Paul answered by the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? This is where God wants to put every one of us. This is what we believe. This is why our message is not popular in Greenville County. Because we are the clay and he is the potter. They end up with him being the clay and they are the potter. They're the ones that choose whether he's going to be their God or not and whether they're going to go to heaven or not. But I tell you something, the Bible doesn't preach that. The Bible teaches that he's the potter and we are the clay. And just like a potter on earth, he has the right, the power, and the will, the choice, to take a lump of clay and to make something ugly. And then to dash it. And he has the right to take that clay and to make something beautiful for honor. That is the right of the potter. Clay, clay, which is nothing but sticky mud, does not have a right to say to the potter, you can't do that to me. It's, it's impossible. And so the Apostle Paul is appealing to something that is impossible. We do not have the right to question or to bark against the God who chooses to have mercy and compassion on whomever He will and to harden those whomever He will. We had our chance in the Garden of Eden. The devil had his chance before the Garden of Eden. The devil blew his chance. He's reserved in chains to the everlasting destruction that Jesus Christ poured out upon him in the last day. And all men deserve to be in that same condition if God were just fair. But he's not just fair. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's kind. He's full of, he's full of kindness toward us. He sent Jesus Christ to save us. He did not raise up a Savior for the angelic host. And the angels desire to look into these things because they cannot believe that the God of heaven would save lowly men and bypass all of them. And He has saved us. And God has purposed that He's going to have a whole family. And Jesus Christ will be the preeminent Son. And so that we in heaven will all inherit God and will inherit heaven. And together with Jesus Christ, we will worship God. By His grace, 
by His will to the praise of the glory of His grace. But we should keep reading. Verse 22, having introduced the thought of a potter and clay, listen to these words. What if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? He has just introduced the concept of a potter making different kinds of vessels. And he's about to explain God has made two different kinds of vessels from humanity. The clay of humanity. What if God, willing, God has a will that's broader and deeper and more specific than anyone wants to preach today. What if God, willing to show His wrath, and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering, vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Part of the human race has been left in their sins, fitted to the destruction of the great day of judgment, and God has left them there in order to show His power and His wrath upon them, just like He will show His power and His wrath on the devil and His angels. They're all going to the same place. Wicked men are going to the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, verse 41. What if God is willing to do that? You don't have a right to bark against Him. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed, shall the vessel rise up off the table and tell the potter he doesn't like him because of the way the potter made him? Verse 23, And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. There's the predestination from chapter 8. God had afore prepared them unto glory. And Paul goes on to say, Even us, the saints in Rome, and the apostles and, and ministerial helpers that were writing with Paul, even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. The Jews and Gentiles that make up the elect of God, God had purposed in them to show His great riches of mercy and His glory. There's the contrast. On some, He's going to show His power and His wrath. On others, He's going to show His mercy and His glory. Romans chapter 9. We believe in election and predestination. If it weren't for election and predestination, every one of us would end up in hell. The Bible tells me this about you and me. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek after God. They are all gone out of the way. There is none that understandeth. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. If God had left us to ourselves, there is no offering that He could make of eternal life or anything else that any of us would have taken. Because there was no fear of God before their eyes. There is none that understandeth. These are verses from the Bible. Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Psalm 58, Romans chapter 3. There is none that seeketh after God. So God came seeking after us to make Himself a people, to glorify Himself by His mercy and His glory. Amen. Look at Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. A particular group 
that Paul is referring to here in the generation to which he addressed these words. Because the question was, has God entirely forsaken the Jewish people? So Paul says in Romans 11.5, Even so then at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if it be of grace, then is it no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then is it no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Grace and works are mutually exclusive terms. You can't mix them. If grace is involved, there's no place for works. If works are involved at all, there's no place for grace. And this election is by grace. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We believe in election and predestination because the Bible teaches it. Our fathers taught it. The Apostle Paul taught it. What a predestinarian he was. Let's read again. Those words I just read to you from Romans 8 and Romans 9, those are not common texts for any pulpit hardly left in our county and in our state or nation. Ephesians chapter 1. Let me just read a few words, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. How do we get all those spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ? Let's keep reading the sentence. Verse 4. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. There's the will of God again. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. And we could keep reading, and we would run into predestination and our eternal inheritance in heaven all over again as we work our way to verse 12. But I want you to notice right here, according to the good pleasure of His will is the last part of verse 5. The predestinating purpose of God in adopting some fallen, sinful, wicked, condemned humans as His sons was according to the good pleasure of His will. It wasn't the good pleasure of anyone else's will. It was the will of God. And that is in perfect agreement with Romans 9.15. I will have compassion and mercy on whom I will have compassion and mercy. Verse 6 says, it's to the praise of the glory of His grace. Which is exactly what it said about the vessels of mercy that were afore prepared unto glory. It's for the glory of God's grace. Because through eternity, we're going to thank God for His grace and mercy toward us in electing us and putting us in Christ Jesus. And He would come and stand in our place as a perfect substitute and obey and die and live again for us. So true is this that Jesus said in John chapter 6, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. I remember as a boy, we had a thing in the Baptist church that I went to called Bible school during the summer. Daily vacation Bible school. And we would learn verses. And I remember when we learned John 6.37, they only required us to learn John 6.37b. 
they, they had another designation for verses. It wasn't just the reference. It was A, B, or C, depending on what part of the verse they wanted you to memorize. So we memorized John 6, 37b. Him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. Now that's just not fair with the Word of God. I like the first half of that verse. All the Father giveth me shall come to me. Why don't they want to teach that doctrine? God gave some to Jesus Christ, and the crowd that Jesus was addressing right there, God hadn't given to him. If you read the entire chapter of John chapter 6, he's addressing those men that wanted to fill their bellies with the free food when he multiplied the loaves and the fishes. And he tormented them for about 70 verses. He said, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Verse 44, verse 65. But look at verse 60, verse 38 of John chapter 6. I was going to quote it to you, but you might as well look at it. John 6, 38. I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me. Here is God's will operating again. This is the Father's will which hath sent me. That of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing but should raise it up again at the last day. Amen. Did, Jesus, did Jesus understand the will of God? Absolutely. What did He come to do? The will of His Father in heaven. Was the will of His Father in heaven to save everyone? No. Was the will of His Father in heaven to try to save everyone? No. Was the will of His Father in heaven to absolutely, certainly save every single one that God the Father had given Him? The ones that were chosen here and predestinated? Absolutely yes. That's the doctrine of the Bible. That's a God-honoring doctrine. Do you know how high this gets God and how low it gets man? We are utterly dependent upon the pure, free, unconditional mercy of God. That doctrine is hated today because men want to exalt themselves. We are told that the perilous times would bring men who are lovers of their own selves. They have a form of godliness but they deny the power thereof. We're trying to put the power back in the gospel instead of putting it with men. Jesus isn't going to lose a single one. The idea that Jesus is going to be weeping in heaven over those that didn't do something in order to save themselves is entirely contrary to the Bible. I'll lose none of them. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. How do you become a sheep of Jesus Christ? God gave you to Jesus Christ to save as one of his sheep. And no man can pluck them out of my hand. John 10. John 17. In his high priestly prayer before he went to the cross, Jesus said, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Jesus Christ gave eternal life to everyone that God gave him to give eternal life for. The first Adam condemned everyone in him. The second Adam saved everyone in him. How did we get into the first Adam? By being born to natural parents. How did we get into the second Adam? By being chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Right. If any man be in Christ, no, that's not the verse I want. It's 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-two. Sometimes. I need some vitamins. 
For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Amen. How do we get in Adam? We were born. You weren't asked. You weren't consulted. I wish I had been. You know, just think about it. You were not asked if you wanted to be in the first Adam. You right now have a soul that can think about itself and think about its destiny and think about pain, trouble, suffering, and all the rest. You have a soul that you cannot shut off and you weren't even asked if you wanted it. God simply made a choice that you're going to exist as a human. You were born into the first Adam and you did not have a choice about it. You could not say, no, since I know that that first Adam was a sinner and he's going to condemn me to death if I'm connected to him at the moment of conception, I want out of this deal. You were in that deal anyway because there's a God in heaven and he's the potter and you're the clay. Now, I I don't think that's fair. If I want to start thinking like these people who accuse God of not being fair, that's not fair. Why do I have to be born, suffer, and die? Why wasn't I asked if I wanted to do that? You know what? He didn't ask me anything. If he'd asked me a few things, I'd have asked for six more inches. I don't like being 5'9". I wish I was 6'3". Every one of you that are taller in here, you, you, you hurt me. Some of you girls that are taller than me, that hurts even more. He didn't ask me anything. He said, how big of a deck do you want upstairs? How big of a deck do you want right here? You know, nothing. Nothing. Because guess what? I am nothing but clay in the hands of a sovereign potter. He put me in the family he wanted me in, in the nation he wanted me in, in the generation of that nation that he wanted me in, and all the other aspects. Don't you ever bark against God. Be thankful for what you have. God made a wise choice for everything in your life. But you know what? We're all condemned to die because He chose for us to be born into Adam. So we're all going to die. We weren't even asked about that. Every day I'm dying. Every day you're dying. But thanks be to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. Before He made Adam in which I was connected by my first birth, He had already chosen that I would be in the second Adam, His Son, that He would raise up by a miraculous conception in the womb of Mary, and that would be He would be my Savior. And as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And how do we get in Christ to be made alive? We are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Right. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9 says the same thing. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. Oh, we're strange Baptists. We are strange Baptists because Baptists have left this doctrine. There's 450 Baptist churches in Greenville County. Three of them might preach and teach election and predestination. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, Paul writing to Timothy says, Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Paul and Timothy were saved in the purpose of God before the world began, not according to their works, but according to His own purpose. God has a purpose. We are the called according to His purpose. All things work together for good to them who are the called according to His purpose. We believe in election and predestination. 
William Screven, 1682, in jail in Kittery, Maine, 1684, on the Cooper River in Charleston, starting a church in Charleston. Do you want to know what he believed on this subject? Listen to the words. By the decree of God, for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of His glorious grace. Others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of His glorious justice. Amen. Amen. Brother, keep going. These angels and men, thus predestinated and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Amen. Amen. William, keep going. Those of mankind that are predestinated to life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to His eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of His will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of His mere free grace and love without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause moving Him thereunto. William Screven. Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. That First Baptist Church in Charleston right now, and I mean no harm to anyone personally except their compromise on doctrine, just makes me sick. And I hope with David I can say rivers of waters run down mine eyes because they have departed from thy law. They wouldn't have a clue about what that man believed. And they didn't because I asked them. They have totally left that doctrine. We're still holding to it. We're holding to the ancient landmark of election and predestination. Of course, there's much more that could be said on that subject, and much more has been said on that subject. Let's take a corollary subject that's related to it. How's a man born again? How's a man born again? How is he regenerated? How do we get generated again so that we have a second person inside of us, a new creation inside of us? How does that happen? How are we born again? Are we born again by our old man, our fleshly man, our sinful man, our condemned man, doing something to please God in order for God to be in debt to us and regenerate us again? That's heresy. The flesh can't do that. You know what the Bible says? They that are in the flesh cannot please God. You cannot walk up to a man in the flesh and say, if you'll just do this or that, you can be born again. There's only one way we can be born again. It's the same way that Lazarus could come out of a tomb after he had been there four days. Live! It's the only way. Jesus Christ said, live! And a man wound around with many yards of material, came staggering out, and Jesus said, loose him. He had just raised Lazarus from the dead. In Ezekiel 16, the words are, Live! And the little naked baby that hadn't been salted or suppled or anything at all, that had been cast out into the field to die a death, that little baby came to life by the life-giving voice of the Son of God. That's how a person's born again. 
The life-giving voice of the Lord Jesus Christ says live. And the Holy Spirit does an operation upon us, not reforming us, giving us a new man. It's called a new man in the Bible. It's called being regenerated. I was generated once by my earthly parents. I have been generated again by my Father in heaven who has begotten me again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He put a new soul and spirit inside of me, a new principle inside of me, a new person inside of me that will live with God forever in heaven. And that's being born again. You don't get born again by the dead man, the dead sinner, laying in a bed or laying in a morgue or laying in a cemetery, resurrecting himself. We are in such a state by our condemnation in Adam that we are called dead in the Bible. Dead men don't need a cure. Dead men need a resurrection. And regeneration is a resurrection. It's giving life to that which was dead. And that's what we believe about being born again. You can't do a thing to get born again. If you do anything that is pleasing in the sight of God, it is because you are already born again. If you have faith, It's because you have been born again. Faith is only a fruit of the Spirit, and it it is only exercised by the new man. The old man doesn't have faith. The natural man, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. It doesn't matter how good you were at presenting Jesus Christ, the gospel, or anything else to a natural man. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Until you're born of the Spirit, you can't receive spiritual things. Jesus Christ says live, and you have a spiritual man. By the power of the Holy Ghost that regenerates us. This is what we believe about being born again. We believe the gospel is then preached and those that are born again hear it, understand it, believe it, and want to obey it. We don't preach to dead sinners hoping that we can convince the flesh to do something pleasing to God in order to become spiritual. God must work first. And God did work first. God's worked first in every single case of salvation described in the Bible. When we go find Cornelius, we have a whole chapter about him. Cornelius of the Italian band. We have our own member of the Italian band in here. He wanted to remind me of that between our assemblies. And you know what I said in the first assembly that caused him to want to remind me. He's a wonderful brother, though, from the Italian band. When we, when we turn the pages and look into Acts chapter 10... We meet a man named Cornelius. What's he doing at home all the time? He's praying always. What's he doing with his money? He's giving alms to the people. What is he and his whole family doing? Fearing God with all his house. Wait a minute. We've got a man that fears God when Romans 3.18 says there is no fear of God before their eyes. We've got a man, an Italian man, in Caesarea that's praying to God always, and his prayers are being heard, God doesn't hear the prayers of sinners. God only hears the prayer of the righteous. His ears are open unto their prayers. God does not hear the prayers of any man in the flesh. He only hears the prayers of a spiritual man who's got the righteousness of Christ that makes him acceptable in the sight of God. 
He's giving alms to the people and they're being accepted in the sight of God. An angel is dispatched to the house of Cornelius. Cornelius, thy prayers have been heard. Send a Joppa for a preacher named Peter. He's going to come and tell you what you ought to do. And do you know what he ought to do? He ought to get baptized. And so Peter came and preached Jesus Christ to him and relieved him from all the condemnation and guilt that was upon his soul because he, had already, he was alive in his new man and knew that he was a condemned sinner because he knew he was a sinner. The gospel was preached to him. His conscience was relieved because he knew that a substitute had been raised up to pay for all his sins and he was baptized at the end of Acts chapter 10. That is the gospel, brethren. That is what we believe and that is what we preach. God regenerates first, then the gospel comes. Peter didn't regenerate Cornelius. Cornelius was already accepted with God. Cornelius was already born again or he wouldn't have feared God. He wouldn't have been praying to God all way in prayers that were heard and accepted. A landmark. An ancient landmark which our fathers have set. Regeneration comes first, then the preaching of the gospel. Jesus looked at Nicodemus one night when he came to him and explained to him this. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I don't care about your evangelistic methods. Unless a man's been born again, he isn't going to believe or accept a single syllable that you say in any meaningful way. Except, except a man be born again, he cannot see. Therefore, I mean, what does that mean? A man cannot see the kingdom of God. A man cannot see Jesus Christ. A man cannot see the gospel, except he is born again previous to that. That's why it says in John 1, 12 and 13, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God regenerates His children first. He elected them in eternity. He justified them at the cross of Calvary, and He regenerates them in time. Then they hear the gospel and they rejoice. The preaching of the gospel to the regenerate elect is the savour. It's the sweet aroma to God of life unto life. Second Corinthians two fourteen through seventeen, the the savour of life unto life. When the gospel is preached to the unregenerate, and they rebel against it, don't understand it, and walk out and forget it, it is the savour of death unto death. The gospel has never been the savour of death unto life. The gospel is only the savour of life unto life. It proves and manifests the life that is already there. The gospel brings life and immortality to light. Second Timothy 1.10 there, is, there isn't a word in the New Testament written to an unregenerate man. Not a single syllable. Because it would be entirely wasted. The Apostle Paul went anywhere he could find Regenerate elect. Can I prove that? I therefore endure all things for the elect's sakes. Second Timothy 2.10 What was Paul's manner when he went into a city? Was Paul's manner when he went into a city to go to the jail? Was it to go to the mall? Was it to go to the brothels? Was it to go to the amusement parks? What was Paul's method? We're told over and over through the book of Acts and we are told this was his method. He went to synagogues where people were worshiping God and where they had the Scriptures of the Old Testament. And he went and preached Jesus Christ to them. In the city of Philippi, after the synagogue, he went to a 
a river where prayer was wont to be made. He was looking for praying people like Cornelius because he wanted to tell them about Jesus Christ because they are the children of God to whom the message is given. Regeneration and conversion are two very different things. Regeneration is God's command to live and the power of the Holy Ghost that gives us an entirely new nature that loves the things of God. The minute Adam sinned, he died. The moment he touched that fruit, they instantly knew they were naked. They were ashamed of their nakedness. They immediately tried to cover that with their own efforts. They went and hid from God because they no longer wanted to walk with God. And then they made up excuses as soon as God came and confronted them. And that hasn't changed a bit. We still act just like that. We cover our own filthiness and our own nakedness before God with our own efforts. We make excuses as to why we're not what we should be instead of humbling ourselves in repentance before the feet of God. Adam went and hid in the trees of the garden because he was dead in trespasses and sins. And it's not until God regenerates a man that he comes and falls at his feet and says, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And there's Saul of Tarsus, by the grace of God. Entirely by the grace of God. Because I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Conversion in the Bible is to change from one form of conduct to another. Peter was told by Jesus just before our Lord's crucifixion, When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now, Peter didn't need to be born again. Peter had been born again for years. But he needed to be converted from his impulsive fearfulness, impulsiveness and fearfulness, and he was. We find him a few days later, after he was converted, strengthening his brethren, just like Jesus told him he should, and he did. In James chapter 5, we're told that if we, when we convert our brethren out of error and back into the truth, that's the work of conversion. And that's a lifelong process. Right. We, are, we are continually being conformed to the image of God's dear Son while we're here in this world. And that's the work of conversion. If a minister is lazy, if you're in a church that's not preaching the whole counsel of God, your conversion will be stunted. Right. Your regeneration can't be touched. If God elected you and Christ justified you, the Spirit will regenerate you. Can I prove it that if you're in a church with a lazy pastor, your conversion will be stunted? Take heed unto the doctrine. Take heed unto thyself. 1 Timothy 4.16 Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. Paul telling Timothy. Continue in those two things. Watching your personal life and watching your doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. A minister must guard his personal life and he must guard his doctrinal life in order to keep himself practically saved to the truth in conversion and so that he can practically save his people to full conversion, to walking in a pleasing manner before God. If a minister is not faithful, that church will compromise in doctrinal error. That church will compromise in practical sinning. They'll become a carnal congregation. The Spirit of God will leave them. They're God's elect. They're justified by Christ. They're regenerated by the Spirit, but they never have the fulfilling lives that please God like they should. That's conversion. Those two things are very different. God regenerates 
by the power of the Holy Spirit through the spoken word of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are converted by the preaching of the gospel to conform our lives more and more closely to what the Bible teaches. And regeneration always precedes this thing. They're not even related. You don't convert the flesh, not even in the least degree. The flesh is unconvertible. The Spirit of God can't even convert the flesh. You say, that's a strong statement. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. It's a matter of ability. When we are in the flesh before we're born again, nothing will influence us. Do you remember the rich man in hell? The rich man in hell said, Abraham, i got a problem. i got five brothers, and I don't want them to come here. It's a little too hot. You know, since you can't give me a drop of water for my tongue, how can I keep my five brothers from coming here? Abraham said, son, the scriptures are read in the synagogue every Sabbath day. Isn't that good enough? Oh, Father Abraham, I'm sorry to tell you this, but they just go and put in their time in the pew, and they don't really listen to anything, and they go out and golf all afternoon. Father Abraham, listen, if you'd send Lazarus back from the dead, if you'd send a man back from the dead and he could go tell them not to come to hell, I'm sure they wouldn't come here. Do you want to hear the truth of God's word? Now, that'd be the greatest evangelist this world has ever seen if somebody had raised themselves from the dead and could go tell about what it's like. You know what Abraham said? If the preaching of, my, if the, preaching of the scriptures in the synagogue don't have any effect, neither will there be any effect though one would rise from the dead. Amen. That's what we believe. You can preach the gospel to a person that is not born again, and it will never do them one bit of good. God must regenerate them first. Then they hear. Then they believe. Then they want to obey based on that new man that's inside of them. Without that, send a man back that was raised from the dead. Won't do a bit of good. So, when Paul would go into a city... He didn't go looking for dead brothers of the rich man. I mean, for for brothers of the rich man that were dead in trespasses and sins. He went to the synagogue and he went to other places where there were people that feared God. Just fearing God ignorantly, not knowing the full truth. And he'd open the scriptures to them and teach them all the things they didn't know, converting them to a fuller knowledge of God and his salvation and how they should live to please him. This is Bible evangelism. Paul knew he wasn't going to add a single one to those that God had given Jesus Christ to redeem. He wasn't trying to influence election. He was just trying to find the elect. He wasn't going to add to those that Jesus Christ died for because Jesus Christ had already said he would raise up every single one of them. He was trying to find those regenerate elect that he could preach the gospel to so that while they lived in this world, they could live lives pleasing to the Savior who had laid down his life for them. And so Paul labored. There's a couple more landmarks of our faith. We're predestinarian Baptists. So was William Screven. You know, we don't believe in election and predestination because William Screven did. What William Screven believed or didn't believe doesn't mean a thing to us as far as what we have to believe. What we have to believe is from that first landmark. What does the Bible say? And the Bible says that God chose us in Christ before the world began and that Jesus isn't going to lose a single one that God gave him. He's going to raise up every single one. 
Every name in the book of life was written there before the foundation of the world. There is no new name written down in glory, in spite of the fact I sang that song a thousand times in my youth. There's no new name written down in glory. They've been written there from the foundation of the world. Amen. And brethren, not only did God elect us before He ever created Adam, not only did Christ die for us guaranteeing our eternal life 2,000 years ago, God the Holy Spirit has regenerated us, or I can promise you, Jonathan Crosby wouldn't be here today. Jonathan Crosby had other ideas for life. This is the last place my high school would ever think Jonathan Crosby would be. It's entirely by the grace of God that he would regenerate me and give me a heart that I love his word, that I love his son Jesus Christ, that I love heaven, that I love spiritual things instead of natural things. And I believe every single one of you can say amen, that you know that was true of you as well. Thanks be to God that he not only elected us, but He also regenerated us so that we were quickened from our state of death and trespasses and sins, that we would love the things of God. Then, hear the Gospel and believe it and rejoice in it today. And here we are today, an assembly that I'm trying to hold together, to hold the ancient landmarks of our fathers, that we will not depart from them, but that we will hold fast our profession of faith upon the testimony of God's Word. May the Lord bless us and may we live the rest of this day like the regenerated children of God. May we be conformed in our lives to look like Jesus Christ. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.